Another week, another episode of the Mastering Agility podcast. My name is Sander Deer, and I'm practicing Scrum from the trenches myself. This podcast aims to inspire you and others with the best people in the business. This podcast series is brought to you by agilitymasters.com, providing you with all the agile coaches and scrum masters you need. This week, we did the episode a little differently than we usually do. This week, you had the opportunity to send in your question when it comes to planning an estimation. And we got a really cool guest this week. Mike Cohn is here to answer all your questions. Let's see what he's got to say. Mike Cohn, thank you very much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for having me here. I spoke to uh, Jeff Gothelf the other day, and we were going through the list of people that we were we were on, having on the show. And I mentioned, I'm, uh, I'm recording with Mike, Mike Cohn tomorrow. And he said, ah, oh, so you have all the agile royalty in here. So <laughs> he sees you as the royalty. I'm not sure if, if he sees you as the prince or the king. I'm not sure where he puts you, but... I guess I, that's I think a compliment. I'm the, the court jester would probably be where I'd put me. So um, <laughs> I just got lucky that I've been around it a long time. So, And I'm lucky that we're having you here. Hey, well, today you. we're doing something a little different. We're answering uh, listeners' questions. And I'd like to start off with Frederick Carlson. Are you ready? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. The statement he sent in was, Velocity and estimations make great metrics to drive value. That's a that's the question. Uh, that's the, um, that's the statement. Oh, is there a question, or you want me to comment on the statement? <laughs> yeah, let, let's go for the comments. Yes. Okay. What's your um, view on it? I, I, I'm thinking of like often. I think like velocity is like how fast you're reading a book, right? And I might say, let's just let's just, let me make me sound impressive. I read 200 pages a minute. Um, that sounds really impressive. Um, or let's make it 200 pages an hour. That's feasible. I can't even turn 200 pages a minute. But I read 200 pages an hour. But um, it's in a little kid's book with one word per page. Um, you know, that's not all that impressive. And so velocity doesn't really mean anything about value delivery or anything like that. I mean. Of course, if we can look at a team with no influence from you're being measured, right? I mean, teams just like totally honest. It's just them. Yeah, if their velocity goes up, they're probably delivering more value. They're delivering more of something. And hopefully they're smart people and they know that they should be focused on valuable things. But, um, man, one of the absolute best teams I have has a velocity of 11. And often what I'll do is I'll tell people, it's like, hey, I worked with a team. They have a velocity of 11. And I'll just like, what comes to your mind when I say that? And often it's like, wow, that's kind of low. Um, you know, and you get this like negative because they only have a velocity of 11, but they're an absolutely amazing team. And it just has to do with the the number they use. So, no, I don't really think, I mean, I never judge a team by their velocity. I might judge like their velocity is double what it used to be or half what it used to be. And that might be good if you know other things about it. But I don't think it's directly tied to value. But, you know, the more you deliver, if you're smart, you're delivering valuable things. What makes this such a reoccurring topic? Oh, because it's the, you know, the holy grail of management is getting one number that you can measure people by, right? I mean, you know, who wouldn't want to know, uh, you know, number of widgets made per hour or something like that, right? We, um, my grandfather had a job on a loading dock and I remember like something he had that was just like really fun for me when I was like five years old was this little thing he held in his hand and it would just go click, 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 click. It had a little counter. 
And I would try to just click it a whole bunch of times to get it to roll over at a thousand because we would go to nine, nine, nine. And, you know, it's five years old. It was just like click, 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 click. Right. And, um, you know, we do that. And it was his from when he'd worked on this loading dock, just counting the number of pallets that had been unloaded. And that was part of his job. So who doesn't want a metric like that? And velocity looks like such a perfect one. Um, except for the fact that teams don't always have really good definitions of what is velocity, right? You know, do bugs count? I was talking to a team yesterday about um, do uh, should they get points for unexpected work, you know, emergencies from the boss. Um, I've worked with a team before, true story, that gave themselves velocity credit. They gave themselves points for having lunch. Um, wow. And I can explain why. It's actually kind of a twisted story. It actually somewhat made sense that they were trying to do that. But so velocity means just all different things to different people. And so I think management looks at it and goes, this is a great metric. But it's like any metric, we we focus on it and teams are going to behave in a way that that number goes in the positive, in the good direction, the positive direction for velocity. And it just gets misused when that when that happens. So judging by your story uh, with your grandfather, would you say then velocity would make a better metric in taking the Stacey matrix in this, uh, in this equation in the simple or the complicated domains rather than the complex domain where Scrum and Business Agility thrives? It's interesting. Um, no, I don't think so. I think velocity is equally good in any of those domains. The issue is that it's just such an easily manipulatable variable because it doesn't really mean anything. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a relative measure, right? So, um, you know, for me, like the classic relative measure was like old, uh, uh, measures, things like the imperial metric, the imperial measurement system, like feet, yards, stuff like that. And, you know, suppose I make an agreement, the yard was defined as from your nose to your thumb, right? That was a, that was a yard. And suppose I make an agreement with you that I'm going to sell you uh, a thousand yards of fabric. You're going to make something and I'm going to sell you a thousand yards of fabric. Well, I'm going to go hire the shortest armed person in the country to come be my measurement person, right? And they're going to measure you out a thousand, a thousand yards of that. And you're going to come with your longest armed person and say, no, that's not a thousand. We're going to argue. And so it's just such an easily gamed metric. So I don't think it matters if we're in simple or complex domains. It's just um, a relative measure. And I think it's a phenomenal measure if we're honest with it, right? You know, you on a desert island, just you, could you use velocity in very positive ways? Absolutely. It just goes wrong when somebody kind of outside starts to think there's more meaning to it than there is, or they start putting false pressure on teams. That makes sense. Thanks for that. Yeah. Question by Robert van Lieshout. When is it better to invest in estimation and when is it better to invest in slicing backlog items? Oh, I love that. Um, you know, everybody thinks I want to estimate everything and um, I don't. Um, I, I will for practice at times. I'll estimate things like that just, you know, kind of for fun. But um, I don't estimate everything on a product backlog. I don't even estimate out as far as many other people do. My guidance on estimating is that um, if someone will use the estimate to make a better decision, then I'm, then it's worth estimating. But a lot of times teams are asked to estimate just because the boss wants to sleep better at night. And, you know, the boss thinks, well, if I ask for an estimate and if they start to get behind, I can yell at the team. It's like, 
okay. I mean, I guess that's one to read out for an estimate, but it's not a very good one. On the other hand, if um, you know a boss comes to me and says, "Hey, Mike, can we get this done in three months?" I just want to know, you know, three months. Uh, does that seem reasonable? That's not a really good way to ask the question because it anchored me into thinking about three months. But if the boss comes to me and just says, you know, how long will this take? Um, and I go off and I estimate that and the boss goes, no, that's, that's too long. Let's, let's not do the project. That was a useful estimate, right? So that, that was good. Um, but just, you know, letting me sleep better or something like that, not useful. So I estimate when we're going to make a different decision using the estimate. Um, I think what you're asking with the, you know, when are we better off just kind of splitting stories apart? Um, I think it's going to be interesting as we see more and more teams that forego estimating and just say, we're just going to make everything the same size, um, or we're just going to split everything apart and just, you know, kind of, you know, see how many we do and we average 20 things a sprint or something like that. Um, if you believe my earlier comment about velocity gets gamed, right? People will start to cheat on velocity. You have to go with the idea that if we just say everything is the same size, or we do 20 things on average, the product owners will start to game the system too. They'll just start making things a little bit bigger. And um, a team that just honestly did 20 things will now have to do 20 things that are two or three or 5% bigger. And so they'll have that a little extra pressure. If they manage to do it, they'll get a little bit pressure to get a few more or get the same 20 in, but they'll all be just that tiny bit bigger. Now, product owner can't totally game it and make things twice the size. Everybody notices, but they just start to go with a little bit bigger items. And that's been my experience that I've seen with teams that try just, oh, we're just going to split everything. We're just going to make it all small and we'll see how many we do every sprint and just track that tends to kind of go down over time and they end up getting pressure to, you know, get back to your old number. Um, even though the number has gone down uh, over time, just because the things are bigger. So it gets, it gets gamed. Sounds like there's also a really big tie together with trust here. And if you're going to game these metrics, you're going to affect the level of trust and therefore your ability to drive value as trust is the basis of teamwork. I think you're right, but I also think some of it's just plain human nature because what I just described, I am totally aware of, and I will catch myself going, nah, I'm going to leave that as one compound thing. I'll just give that to my team as two things. Um, instead of splitting it apart into, into perhaps two or three things, I'll just leave it as one big thing. And it's like, and I know what I'm doing, but I'll still do it that time. Um, and you know what? Sometimes it does seem like I get more work that way. Um, there is some overhead when you break things down and teams look at it. They're, oh, no, three things. And if I have it as one thing, um, they're going to be more inclined to just think it's one thing and just do it. And so um, I think there's a kind of a, a sweet spot to the size of work that, that teams do. And as aware of the problem as I can be, I will still catch myself sometimes leaving things a little bit bigger. And it's like, oh, let's, let's see what see how they respond. And I'm not trying, I'm, I mean, I'm a pretty good boss. I'm not really trying to force them into more work or something. Sometimes it's just, I'm too lazy to turn it into three things, but <laughs> I, I do it and I'm aware that I'm doing it, but I just go for it. Right. And so I do think it's trust. You have to have that trust, but someone's just playing human nature to, you know, leave it as one big thing or to be lazy. Just leave it as one big thing. Cause that's the easiest thing to do. Also, I can imagine that you have, by now you have quite a, an ability to judge the risk that's behind it. Um, I do on a fair number of things in part because of my background is technical and I don't really get to code much anymore, um, in stuff we do inside our company, but I'll occasionally a tiny bit, uh, but I'm close enough to it still that I can, um, I can assess those things. But your question there actually is, is goes back to like, when do I estimate? 
Um, if you were to look at my backlog, you would not see estimates on everything um, in there. And that's because I can look at things and go, yeah, that's a week. You know, it's a couple days or a week, no big deal. And I know that whether it's two days or five days, I want it and I want it the same amount. Right. If, if it was five minutes, I might say, Hey, you know, programmer, can you do this right now? It's only five minutes. Um, but it's very unlikely that it's five minutes. So I'm looking at it going, ah, a couple of days to a week. And I don't need any better estimate than that. That is enough for me to make the decision. But if you did look at my backlog, you would see some things that have estimates. And those are the things where I was like, I got no clue how long this is going to take. And so I'll ask my team, you know, give me an estimate on this one. And what all this means is I don't know my velocity. I love velocity. I think velocity is extremely useful. I use it for making long-term predictions. But specifically, just talking about inside my small company, Mountain Goat Software, we don't have to make predictions of like, when will you be done with this? Uh, how long will this take? We used to. That used to be our life. We would do contract software. That's how we got started. But we don't do that anymore. So I don't have to know my velocity. I don't have to estimate everything. I just estimate the stuff that's going to let us make better decisions. And that's a good segue to the next question by Nodas. Anastasio, how do you approach long-term plans where people want to plan based on possible acceleration of a team? Ooh, <laughs> um, a couple of different things there. So, you know, the, the standard agile advice is to, you know, assume we're not going to get better, assume standard velocity. Try going to a boss with that statement and say, I also want to be agile because it helps us improve and get better. And we're doing this meeting to continuously improve. And that's the whole point of agile is to get better. And, but we're not going to assume any improvements. Um, you know, we have to be honest, like we're going to get better at this thing or we're, we're failing. Um, so I'm fine assuming some level of improvement, but I want to be very conservative on that, right? I do not want to look at it and go, oh, we're going to be 50% higher in our velocity or anything like that. But I might look at something and say, look, you know, we've got a pretty good uh, set of data that right now says our velocity, is, know, let's just say 15 to 20 or something. Um, and I might want to say, you know, in the future, it's, you know, let's go ahead and plan 17 to 22 or something like that. So I'm fine planning some little improvements there. Otherwise, it's like I'm kind of embarrassed to say I'm agile if I don't think we're going to get any better. But um, I wouldn't want to plan on any big improvements. The way I use velocity and the way I plan is normally based on uh, averages. And so if we have a velocity that goes up to 25 one time, you know, say our average is 20, goes up to 25. That's just random statistical variation, right? That doesn't mean anything. Um, same way we might have 16 next sprint. I'm not going to go to the boss and go, give the team a raise. Their velocity was 25. And, you know, go back to the boss and go, oh, no, we need to hire people. Velocity was only 15. Those are random variations in there. And the data I have shows that velocity bounces around in about a plus or minus 19% range. That's really precise. So call it 20%. But a plus or minus 20% relative standard deviation. So, if your average is 20, you might get 24 or 16, and that's just random variation. So I don't ever want to get obsessed on those things. That's why I think it's a little bit hard to plan on improvements because of that variability that's in there for doing story points. Would you focus then more on the predictability, the overall um, yeah, overall state of predictability, as long as that's raising until a certain point? Yes, almost every executive group I've worked with has made a comment or agreed with a comment if I asked them about it, that they would trade some level of speed for greater predictability. Um, that it's, you know, it's rarely the case where it's just like, go as fast as you can. I don't care when you're done, just go as fast as you can. Because we do have to make predictions. We've got to 
we've, we've got to put together a marketing campaign. We have to coordinate with the, the shipping department. You know, we've got to get the boxes ordered if it's something physical. And so there's often some level of coordination that I just described more internal ones than external, but there's often some level of coordination that benefits from predictability. And that is never going to be great. I mean, in the world we're in today, predictability is really hard, but trying to get a little bit more predictability on something like an overall deliverable, most organizations would trade a little bit of speed for that. Not a lot, but they'll trade a little bit of speed for gaining that predictability. Speaking of speed, it still seems that a lot of organizations want to adopt this this agile thing, air quotes, <laughs> because it speeds up the delivery process. What's your thought on that? I totally believe it does. Um, I think it's, um, you know, it's time to market. And so it helps us think about producing smaller things, the whole minimum viable product concept. So it helps us start to get to um, customer feedback earlier. It helps us start to get to a uh, earn our payback period back on on a product, the earning, earn the investment back. And so I do believe that time to market is one of the big drivers for Agile. It's one of the reasons that I'm interested in. It's one of the reasons that I started doing it. Um, it's not something I measure very often because, you know, you'd kind of have to run the project in a traditional way and an Agile way and compare them and how could you do that. Um, but I would really have no, I would really have no problem saying that Agile does decrease time to market. Um, Michael Ma is a kind of Agile metric or I'm just a, in general software metrics guy. And he's done research to show that time to market decreases with, uh, with agile. So I, I believe that I think it's one of the, one of the reasons why people do it. There was a um, interesting paper came out probably 30 years ago it was in Harvard business review. And the paper was called time, the next competitive advantage. And it was basically saying we've wrung all the efficiencies we can out of, you know, having people work smarter and, you know, just in time automation, all this type of stuff. And that the next way that companies would compete would be time to market. And um, I believe that has been true over the last 30 years. That's been how we've competed in, in being able to not be the first person into an industry, right? You don't have to be the first in, but to innovate quickly and come up with new releases, learn from those new releases, iterate again. I do think that has been the the competitive advantage over the last 30 years. What's going to be the next thing then now that we've <laughs> run out of every other possible thing? I can imagine after time to market and after the ability to innovate, we're getting on a, on a very flat surface here. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'm not much of a futurist, much of predicting what's coming next. What's your um, estimation? What my okay? I'm good at estimating, not at, not at, not at forecasting the future. I will give you an answer. Um, I don't know. It was really interesting. I just want to comment on it generally first, and I will give an answer. I think it's interesting to to wonder where will that next innovation come. And you know, how many times in history have we? Um, said, you know, we're at the end of, of innovation. We're at the end of this. It can't get better. I mean, this was uh, Thomas Malthus's theory 250 years ago, whatever it was, about how we were going to run out of food because the rate of food production, the rate of uh, reproduction, human reproduction, we're not going to keep up with each other. We'd run out of food. Um, you know, and he was wrong. And so we're going to, you know, we're always going to find new ways to innovate. And I think a lot of it is going to be in the um, ability to rapidly cycle through ideas, to try things. Um, I read something a while back that was talking about how big 
arguments about user experience design are done. We're not going to have those anymore, right? I mean, I'm used to the thing, you know, bring somebody in, uh, you know, have them in a, observe them in a behind a mirror, see how they're using the system, those type of things. And we're not going to do that type of stuff anymore. It's just easy to iterate over a user interface, put it out maybe to a small segment of an audience, especially web-based, see how they respond and then dial it up or dial it down, change it. And that we don't need to argue about it anymore. We just try it. And, um, I think in large measure, stuff like that is true. So where it's the ability to experiment with real things has gotten a lot cheaper. I think back to when I started my career in the 80s, prototyping was a huge thing. And um, I remember in uh, would have been the early 90s, Dan Bricklin, who was the guy that wrote VisiCalc, came out with a product called Dan Bricklin's Demo. And it was just a product for prototyping things. And you could do these in intense prototypes. Um, and people would, they would spend months building this prototype and it looked and acted like a real system, but it didn't really have a database under it or anything like that. And we did that back in the early nineties. I just did a little bit. I was aware of it, but companies did that back then because it was so expensive to write code. These days, it's pretty cheap to write code. We have all these libraries and widgets and everything else, components. It's easy to write something and we put it out and we get feedback. So I think what we're going to see is, um, you know, just more emphasis on the, the rapid cycling through of ideas. So um, if I can give one more prediction, and I'm, I don't know if this is going to be true, but it, it is where I think, it's where I worry things might be headed, is I worry we might be nearing the end of teams. And COVID might have accelerated that, this whole work from home period, where I think of like from the mid 80s on is where teams have been dominant. Teams really started in the mid 80s, you know, give it to a problem, give a problem to a team, not a department, but a team, and the team would be cross-functional. And I'm worried we're now entering what's been called the age of hyper-specialization, where you have people who are, let's just say a programmer, and all that programmer does is write login screens. And they are the world's best at writing login screens. And when you need a login screen, whoever you are, you hire that person. Um, and that'd be hyper-specialization. And I'm worried we might be heading towards that, in which case we're going to have more kind of managers or scrum masters, whoever they are, that have to kind of coordinate the work of a larger set of individuals, and they're not there as a team. They're not there for like, okay, for six months we're building this thing. They're coming and going to do their little tiny bit of, of specialized work. I'm not sure I like that idea, but that might be where we start to compete next with like bringing in the world's expert because they can do it faster than anybody else. And so instead of buying all components, which we'll still do, we'll hire people that can write customized parts, but in a very specialized manner. So might be heading towards that over the That's next 10 years. Very interesting perspective. And like you, I'm not sure whether I like that. <laughs> Let's try to avoid that. Well, we've gotten used to teams and teams are fun and you enjoy being on a team. You enjoy getting to the finish line of, of a product or a deliverable and, you know, being happy about what you've accomplished. And um, it's not going to be the same. And so, I don't know, maybe it's more fun for a different group of people. But um, I worry that COVID might have accelerated that the work from home world might have accelerated that move. Yeah, let's see what's going to happen. Now, I'm going to, I hope, sincerely hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Krupananda Manakunta. That's a hard one. <laughs> That's a hard one, definitely. As I see, the greatest challenge in software estimation is the choice of right software size measurement as one of the principal bases. I would like to know how this can be addressed. Well, what I like is the story points is the, the size basis. And story points are, you know, they get criticized because like, what do they mean? But that's the strength 
of them. And a team can look at it. And I think it's really hard to say how big something is. You know, we've tried it with lines of code. We've tried it with function points, cosmic points, all these other efforts. And what I really like is just looking at something saying, I have no clue. I have no clue how big this is, but this thing will take twice as long as that thing. The effort to do this is twice as much as that. And I believe that that's much easier for people to do. It's definitely faster for people to do. Um, and it gets a little bit back to your kind of comment about predictability, where what I'm after there is consistency. I might look at something and mentally I'm thinking it's going to take a day. And I say it's going to take twice as long as this other thing. Well, who cares if my day was right, as long as it really does take twice as long as the other thing. And that's an easier thing for people to do. I think we're somewhat kind of um, kind of wired that way in our brains to think about relative estimates. Um, and I, for me, that's the size measure. That was the big breakthrough for me in thinking about estimating was to think about estimating the size of something and then deriving the duration. And what that means is we estimate the size. We need some sort of measurement for that story points. But a separate step is in deriving the duration. And that'd be like, you know, divide by velocity and you've got your plan, something like that. It gets fancier than that. That's a simple version. But to have that separate step where we estimate size, derive duration. And so size metric, story points for me. Would it make sense for teams to use different uh, units of measurements in different sprints? In other words, use story points for the one sprint, t-shirt sizes in the other, animal sizes, I don't know, in the next. You know, I haven't thought about it, so I'm I'm hesitant to reject something um, without having had a you know, serious think about it. But I don't see what I would gain by doing that. Uh, what I'm wondering about is, is there some element of kind of, you know, keeping a team on their toes so that they are, you know, not starting to suffer from biases and things like that. Um, but I think those are... are outweighed by the skill, the proficiency they build up by sticking with a common unit. And I don't care what we call the unit. Story points is just a name. But um, there are challenges with things like T-shirt sizes because they're not additive, right? You can't go to a boss and say, we'll be done in three mediums, two larges, and one petite. It, it doesn't mean anything. So I want to use some sort of scale that's additive. And that's where points or, you know, whatever it is. And I had one team I worked with where it was like, they had a guy in the team named Mark and Mark would eat bags of uh, tortilla chips every day. You have like one bag of tortilla chips. And so they would estimate in like how many bags of tortilla chips would Mark eat before we finish this feature, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, it's just, it's just whatever, however you want to think about it, but you want to use something that's relative and you want to use something that's additive. And I think things like t-shirt sizes, or I started doing like zoo points animals um, about 20 years ago um, as a way to introduce the idea. I think it's really useful to get people thinking about t-shirt sizes to introduce it. But you have to move away from those to something that's additive, and T-shirts are not additive. Was Mark by any chance also in the team that estimated their lunch as well? <laughs> no, that was a totally different team. So, so. All right, question by Christoph van den Ede. This is a long one, bear with me. Okay. Are estimations meant for the product owner to be able to provide an outlook for stakeholders on how much work or gain is possible within a certain time frame, or for the Scrum Master to keep motivation high within the Scrum team and make it possible to have successes on the short term, in other words, completing a sprint, or sprint goal, or is there any other use case estimates are actually meant for? That's a, that's a great question, insightful question. Um, 
there's, there's, for me, there's, there's two reasons to estimate in story points or estimate at all. There's two reasons to estimate. And there's a third, I don't want to call it a reason, but kind of a side benefit. So, um, the, the first reason to estimate is exactly as in the question to be able to make long-term predictions. You know, where will you be in three months? How long will it take to get this stack of features? And that's why I said in Mountain Goat Software, my company, we don't do that because we're not being asked, when will you be done with this? How long will this take? We have little internal goals, but we can kind of figure those out and just kind of eyeball it in here. And if we're wrong, we're wrong. Who cares? Um, so it's for making longer term predictions. The second reason is to be able to prioritize something I touched on earlier, right? If we tell the product owner it's going to take um, 5,000 story points, pretty much don't care what your velocity is. 5,000 story points is big. Um, if this thing's going to take 5,000 story points, the product owner is probably going to go, there's a whole lot of other stuff I want before I want you to spend 5,000 points on that. On the other hand, if we tell the, the product owner, it's like, oh, it's like half a point. Um, the product owner's like, man, let's do it right now. Half a point. Let's get that thing done. And so giving a product owner some sort of uh, estimate is you know, a proxy for the cost of something, certainly the time cost of it. And that's going to help product owners prioritize better, which I think is an important thing. So those are the two reasons to make long-term predictions, to be able to prioritize. The the side benefit, kind of number three, is we just get smarter, right? When, we're, when you're asked how long something's going to take and you think about it and start talking about it, you're going to be smarter. Um, I don't want to estimate just to get smarter because a better way to get smarter is just dive in and start doing it. But it is kind of a side benefit there. I wouldn't do it just to keep a team motivated or do anything like that. I love the comment in the question, though, about, um, you know, basically it was about achieving small victories, right? Achieving small wins was part of the question. Um, there's a professor at Harvard who studied what makes people happy at work. Her name's uh, Teresa Amabile. And um, she wrote a book called The Progress Principle, also has a a paper called Progress Principle. And what she found was the number one determinant in job satisfaction was the frequency of small wins. And I think successfully planning a sprint or an iteration, you know, getting the right amount of work in there leads to that. You know, you get to the end of that sprint, you're like, woohoo, we finished everything we said we would. And you have that positive feeling of we met our goal, right? And, um, you know, I think that's a, that's a great thing. I've been experimenting recently with my um, kind of to-do list, my daily personal to-do list stuff. And uh, I don't know, I'm the typical person who writes down 18 things to do today, and I know I'll get three done, right? And so <laughs> I've been trying to, I've tr been trying to limit it. Like, I am getting these three things done. I am not going to bed unless I get these three things done. And, you know, all I have to do is get like an hour and a half, I can get the three things done. But some days that's a challenge. And um I'm I'm feeling much better when I can cross off my three things. I feel even better than if I cross six out of eighteen, right? I mean, I got might have got less done, but I finished and I have that small win. And so I love the idea of sprints or durations being used for the the feeling of a small victory. But I don't think story points necessarily have to be part of that. Is that comparable comparable to a developer high, like a runner's <laughs> high, where you get a dopamine shot? <laughs> It probably is, but I mean, well, I mean, what do you think? Do you do you feel better when you have those small wins and you know just? In your oh yeah, life definitely. Yeah, yeah. And mine are definitely different from completing uh, stuff on the backlog, but uh, mine are more on the human side, where I can see I have made some some form of impact on people. Like I'm hoping to inspire people with this episode, and if that's going to be the case, and I get positive feedback about that, that's going to be my dopamine shot. My podcasting I, I, high. Yeah, I would think like, you know, imp impacting one person in a hugely significant way would be a whole lot better than impacting a thousand people 
a tenth of a percent, right? It's like, nope, you made me think for two seconds. It's like, okay, I impacted you. But, you know, you really gave somebody something to think about through your episodes. That's, to me, that's huge as yeah. opposed to just a little little impact spread way thin. So I think the frequency of small wins is huge for teams and it's for scrum teams, agile teams, kind of finishing what they said they would or getting close. Yeah, to give you an example of what gave me uh, one of those dopamine shots is I've been talking to Hunter Fahey, uh, uh, Stephanie Ackerman, Patricia Kong. Um, a common thread throughout this episode seems to be that we're all on the same page when it comes to not talking about people as resources. <laughs> and we had a couple of discussions on this, and I'm, I'm really a, an advocate of this. Uh, and I really profoundly think that we should rename the term human resources. But someone came up to me and said, uh, I listened to your your episodes and I was was touched by this. And I actually made it my own policy. And I told my managers, when you're talking to me, please don't ever refer to people again as resources. Now, that is something that I find incredibly powerful. And that gave me such a such a rush, if you will. Yeah. For me, Do you have a better name for it? Do you have a better name for it? I mean, I know we call it personnel department or something like that. Do you have another name you prefer? People. Oh, just people. Yeah, so, if you want to rename the the, uh, the HR, I would go for something like like um, yeah, people business. I don't know. I haven't well, figured are, out there, the right there are term. Like chief people officer, I've seen that. Yeah, company. something chief like people that. Officer, right? So I haven't figured yeah. out the right right name, and also I, I haven't personally found out <laughs> the exact how I would like HR to be part of the process because you see this shift now that um, Agile has been set in organizations now the next step i feel is hr that we're trying to reconfigure what it's supposed to be doing especially for instance the scrum guide doesn't mention management as a, uh, as an accountability it's mm -hmm. still there but what's it yeah. exactly supposed to do that's the next step i feel i think you're right and you know, maybe, you know, I, I asked what I'm thinking about now is kind of a dumb question. Like, what do we call them instead? And you, I love your answers. Just people, right? Um, I read the book Effortless recently. It's by Greg McKeon, who wrote the, um, uh, uh, oh, what was his book before? Um, Essentialism. He wrote the Essentialism book like six or seven years ago, and he wrote a new one called Effortless. He had a great question in there. He said, whenever you're about to do something, ask yourself, are we making this harder than it needs to be? Is there a way to make this simpler? And so I'm sitting here thinking, what can we call them other than human resources? And I'm making it too hard, right? And the, the easy thing is just go with the easiest thing, just call them people, right? And I have like the chief chief people officer at companies instead of a human resources director or something. Yeah, we seem to have this um, this kirk of trying to overcomplicate things, and especially yeah. in the business world with very fancy but shallow terms. Now, here's Harold von Heringen, and here is a statement or a myth. What a single programmer can do in a month, two programmers can do in two months. <laughs> um, so um, there have been some studies of team productivity. One that I'm thinking about was a, a study of various team sizes and how uh, basically how effective the, the team sizes were. And um, one of their conclusions was that a five-person team was the most productive. 
Um, and notice I didn't say most productive per person. So what they were saying was that a five-person team was getting more done per month than a seven or eight-person team, like not per person, but total. And, um, you know, it's all the diagrams we've seen in the past showing, you know, when you have this many people, you have this many communication paths and, you know, it just increases like crazy. And so um, obviously one person a month, two people, two months is an exaggeration. But, um, you know, there is a grain of truth to that, you know, where maybe it's, you know, two people are going to take an extra 20 percent, not double, but or not four times, but, you know, it might take an extra 20 percent. For me, it's when I was um, in my uh, early 20s or I guess teen, teens through early 20s, I was going through university. I worked as a mechanic, a car mechanic, and we had the typical mechanic sign up. And it was like, I think $40 an hour for labor back then. It was like $50 if you watch, $60 if you help, right? And so, you know, because we always would, we'd get the we'd get the guy, he'd bring his car in and he'd want to help us work on his car. And it's like, no, no, it's just going to be a disaster. And so that sign was up there as a joke, but there, there was truth to it. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Now, last question by Harold before going to the end of the show. Good project level estimation depends on good requirements and average requirement skills are about <laughs> as bad as average estimation skills. What's your view? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, right, you know, on average, we're average, right? And so um, I agree with that. The thing that we want to do, here's where a lot of projects go wrong. They're not that bad at estimating. They're really not. We make a list of things. We estimate those things. We're not that bad at it. What we really are bad at, though, is our overconfidence. Right. We estimate those things. And we think that's it. That's all we have to do. And there's a couple of ways that we can get better at that. One is um, a technique called unpacking and, and unpacking. What you do is you take a thing that you have to do and you break it down into smaller, smaller parts. So smaller user stories or smaller backlog items. Uh, so break it down into smaller things, but then don't estimate the small things. Go back and estimate the big thing. Right. Estimate that parent, the original item on the backlog. The reason why this has been beneficial for teams is when we break it down to small things and we estimate the small things, we end up overconfident. We think we've thought of everything. There's the list. There's everything I have to do. When we think of those things, but then go back and estimate the parent thing, we're more likely to remember we haven't thought of everything. And we're more likely than having, you know, a slightly bigger estimate or account for that uncertainty. And so we're actually not bad. If we were to look at those individual things and say two points, one point, you know, or five hours or eight hours or three days, whatever unit we use, we're not that bad at those things. What we're bad at is realizing that's not it. There's more to it than that. And so unpacking is a good technique for that. Something else I do is uh, just super easy. And we started doing this. I said earlier that Mountain Goat used to build products for people. When we would build something, we'd make a list of backlog. We'd estimate the backlog items. And then we'd ask ourselves, what percentage of the problem do we see? And the answer was never 100%. It might be something like 80%. That was a pretty high number. And if we felt like we saw 80% of the problem, we'd have to add another 20 or 25%, depends how you measure it. But we'd add another 25% to the size of the project. So if we saw 100 points, and that was only 80% of the project, we knew that there was really 125 points, but we didn't know what the other 25 were. And so adding that type of uncertainty and acknowledging that uncertainty is huge for trying to get really good at estimating. And um, man, I meet very few teams that ever do that unless I've trained them to do that. People just don't think about it. And to me, it's essential in terms of getting a good estimate is to ask yourself, what percentage of the problem do we see? And then adding some amount for that. It's not a fudge factor. It's not, you're not making it up. Um, I mean, you are making it up, you're making up the number, but based on your expert judgment. 
And so if I have a conversation with you for five minutes and say, estimate this thing for me, you might think, man, I only see 10% of what Mike wants. If I have a conversation with you for, you know, two or three weeks, you know, hour here, hour there over a couple of weeks, you might say 70 or 80%. And so assessing that uncertainty for me is huge in terms of getting better. And that's how we can account for um, whether we have stellar analysts or average analysts on the project. And that's a powerful answer. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to steal this in my <laughs> own, uh, in my own teams. And I'm pretty sure listeners will too. Good. Last question from my side before, um, the closure, what does the word value mean to you? Ooh, <laughs> uh, end with an easy one. Um, that's, you know, that's a tough one. Um, I do an exercise in one of my classes where I have the classes estimate what or not estimate, but identify what's valuable. And I have them do it based on whether we're thinking about stakeholders, um, the users of the system or the development team, and basically make the point that all three have different views of value. And so for me, I think I would probably define value um, as something that is um, worth its effort, right? It was something that we're willing to pay for or put the effort into doing. Um, I'm running a water line in my backyard. Not right now because it's way too hot, but I'm running a water line in my backyard. And um, I think it's valuable. It's worth the effort that I'm putting into it. Um, I ordered dinner last night from the local Thai restaurant. It was valuable. It was worth the money that I paid for it. So I think value is something that somebody is is happy to put the effort or the money into um, to get that out. If we're doing that, there's value there. Awesome. Last question. How can people, where can people find you and how can they interact with you? Yeah, the easiest way to find me is just on our um, mountaingoatsoftware.com uh, website. And my email is just mike at mountaingoatsoftware.com. Awesome. Mike, thank you very much. You're an absolute ocean of knowledge. Well, thank really you. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Sandra. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. I would like to thank our guest and you, the listener, for joining us again in this episode of Mastering Agility. This podcast is part of a series, so make sure to follow us on all the platforms that we provide. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Google Podcasts, you name it. Make sure to go to the website of agilitymasters.com to subscribe to the newsletter in order to stay up to date on the latest information. Check out the show notes and how you can engage with our guests and myself to provide feedback, ask questions, um, more general inquiries, whatever. I would love to hear from you. Next week, we have another amazing episode lined up. So make sure to tune in again. Until then. <laughs>